Hello and welcome to the official Building Your Business podcast series presented by Archer Gallon Redshaw Chartered Accountants. Our firm has launched this podcast series to help simplify some of the complex challenges that occur when owning and operating a business and to assist business owners to better understand the inner workings of their organisation, regardless of which industry you operate within. Every month, we'll be releasing a new episode featuring special guests from industry, as well as Archie Gallen Redshaw directors Ian Walker, Smiljan Jankovic, and Valda Glynn, to provide their commentary on a variety of business management topics, alongside expertise surrounding accounting, taxation, and business strategy. Welcome to our podcast series, Building Your Business. Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Lewis, and you're listening to Building Your Business the official podcast series presented by Archie Gallon Redshaw Chartered Accountants. Uh, for today's episode, I'm joined by a very special guest, Ann Jansen, founder and special counsel of State First Lawyers, alongside AGR directors, Ian Walker and Valda Glenn. Together, Anne, Ian and Valda will be discussing the importance of having the appropriate estate planning considerations in effect for business owners and how commencing the process early can ease the burden in the future. So we'll be doing a mini-series with three episodes released as part of this topic, and all three guests will be covering uh, areas such as wills, testamentary trusts, L-shapes and inheritance implications associated with blended families, and asset protection, bringing together their collective experience and expertise to provide thought leadership and insights across the areas. Welcome, Anne, Ian and Bella. Hi, Chris. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, as some background, Anne is the founder and special counsel of State First Lawyers, a leading estate planning expert based in Brisbane and providing estate planning services Australia-wide. Anne has over 20 years experience in estate planning law and is the Queensland Law Society accredited specialist in succession law. She is noted for delivering innovative solutions to blended families and uh, strategies to prevent inheritance going L-shaped. Anne also deals with the estate planning matters of the firm, which involve complex advice regarding how various structures pass on the death of key participants, including self-managed super funds, companies, and family trusts. She's a keen advocate of testamentary trusts as a tax-effective tool in inheritance planning. I guess across today's episode, I'd really like to sort of discuss, as I say, um, a number of different areas with regards to estate planning, because um, I mean, recent statistics show from between 2018 and 2019, roughly 52% of Australians don't have a will. It's a scary statistic, isn't it, Chris? <laughs> yes. Out, out of the 48% that do have wills, the even scarier statistic is so few of those have an enduring power of attorney as well. Mm-hmm. And so when we do talk about estate planning, we talk not only about what things you have to have in place on death, but also what happens if you're incapacitated. Now, the reason I just bring that up then uh, is because yesterday um, afternoon, I was contacted by um, a lady who was in great distress because her husband, who was only 61 years of age, had a stroke and bleeding on the brain and was in induced coma, which was a shock to the whole family because he was totally sprightly and coaching basketball and everything just the week before when it came out of the blue. Uh, And it happened a week ago, Pichoni contacted me yesterday uh, because her financial advisor wanted to get the trauma insurance happening, but she can't sign because he didn't have an enduring power of attorney. And now we have a real problem because without the enduring power of attorney, the only way she can sign on his behalf is by um, having a QCAT application, 
which could take weeks or months. There's no ability for her as the spouse or next of kin to be able to sign those documents on his behalf. So, you know, it just shows us the importance of having these things in place because, you know, after an event happens, you can't do anything, you know, um, in a hurry or inexpensively. So I guess, um, as I say for today's episode, um, and being the first in the, in the mini-series on estate planning, we'll be looking at some of the, the fundamentals and foundations of estate planning um, and what people need to um, keep in mind in um, those beginning stages. So uh, as I say, I mean, I'd like to pass over to, to Valda just to really get us started on maybe a few things involving estate plans and um, what your thoughts are on those as well there, and uh, moving forward. Thank you, Chris. Good morning, Anne. How are you? Hi, Velda. Um, could you just explain to us exactly what is an estate plan and why do we talk about an estate plan rather than a will? Okay, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> so it's what I call the five wealth buckets. So there are five buckets that you can hold your wealth in, uh, essentially, and only one of those buckets is covered by your will. Now, that comes as a surprise to a lot of people when I explain this to them. So let's just quickly go through those five wealth buckets. You can hold your assets, and that could be shares or property or cash or whatever else, in your own individual name. If it's property, like a house and land, you can hold it with someone else as tenants in common, and your share also will go under your will. That is the only bucket that the will directly controls. If you hold, let's call the, the next bucket the joint assets bucket. So if you have cash at bank with your spouse, um, a joint uh, tenant's property, uh, you hold shares jointly, these joint assets do not pass under your will if you die. Okay, It passes to the survivor the joint survivor. It's called the rule of survivorship and it trumps a will. So that second bucket does not go under your will. The third one is of course superannuation. And most of us these days have superannuation. Superannuation is the third wealth bucket and it does not pass under your will automatically. It passes by its own testamentary documents and you can nominate your will if you so wish, but unless you do, it is at the trustee's discretion, the super fund trustee's discretion, as to who gets your super on death. Then we have, and, and some of our listeners today, I'm sure, have got uh, family trusts. Your family trust assets do not pass under your will. So if you have an investment house in your family trust, you cannot say in your will, I give my investment house to X and Y. You can't do that in your will because it's held in a separate entity uh, for estate purposes. And the final bucket is insurance held outside of um, uh, superannuation because we know that super was our third wealth bucket. And in private insurance, unless it is owned by you and there's no nomination, then it will fall in your will. But if you have a nomination in that insurance, it will go to that person and it will trump anything you put in your will. 
And that's why we talk about an estate plan, because you have to have the wealth in all of those five buckets covered to have your wealth transfer on death. And a will is not sufficient, so you need an estate plan. And that's the context in which we talk about estate planning. Now, the other point there too is those incapacity documents, which also play into the family trust and the super. With an estate plan, uh, being accountants that we are, most of our clients, we ask this question, have they got it all up to date? And usually they throw back to us and say, well, death and taxes exist for a reason, and no doubt tax impacts death. So what are the strategies and opportunities that are available to our clients uh, with respect to developing estate planning early in their careers? Okay, um, well, Ian, that's a good question, and I expected no less coming from an accountant. <laughs> uh, well, we don't have death duties. Um, in Australia anymore. Um, but a lot of people uh, may not realise that there is a death duty on superannuation in certain instances that are quite common. And the main instance is you have a concessional component of your superannuation. And, and just so you understand what that means, it's the part that you put into super that you've got a tax deduction for. Now you see I'm not an accountant, I'm not talking in very fancy tax terms, but if you, one of the classic examples is your 9.5% contribution for an employee. That forms a concessional component of your super. Now when you die, your super has to be cashed out um, unless you are in pension phase and you have a reversionary pension in favour of say your spouse. So, but normally it's cashed out. That concessional component well, you won't pay tax on it if it goes to a spouse or, say, a, a, a child under 18 or an adult child under 25 that is dependent on you. But say you were to give your super to an adult child who is independent of you, then there is a 15% flat tax on that concessional component. And that can be quite high. It can even go to 17% with Medicare levy. But let's call it 15% if you throw it into the will and your adult daughter gets it that way. If you had 500,000 of super, you're talking about a tax of $75,000. And a lot of people are unaware of that tax. Now, um, if you do your estate planning cleverly, there are a lot of opportunities for you to avoid that tax. For instance, if you had a second spouse and you wanted to give a property, uh, you had a property and super, you might give the super to the spouse, which will be tax exempt, and the property, which has no death duty on it, to your daughter. Uh, and there's all sorts of things we can do that way. Or you might have a mix of children, some of whom are financially independent and some financially dependent. And if you have a will that streams the super to the ones that can get the tax concession, then they can save a lot of money after you pass away. And that's the beauty of having a well-structured will that takes advantage of the tax opportunities. The other obvious tax opportunity which you should tick the box on is to have testamentary trusts in your will. Now, we're gonna go through, I think, a, a couple of examples of how those tax advantages play out, but just so that the audience knows what a testamentary trust in a will is. A testamentary trust is very similar to a family trust in that 
you, you select a trustee and you select beneficiaries, um, but the trust itself is in the will. And you can give control to the beneficiary that you want to benefit from the trust. And you do all this in your will. Our testamentary trusts have huge tax advantages that are not available to you in any other vehicle um, in Australia that we have outside of um, superannuation and pension phase that I know of, Valder and Ian might say different, but uh, it's certainly one of the top um, um, tax advantaged entities and you can only do it by putting it in your will. We've got uh, an, a plan in place or we've got our clients coming to us asking. Um, we say yes, there are very, very important tax strategies and opportunities available in the estate plan. My question for you at the moment, Anne, is I've got a year of clients that have young families, so they might have one child up to, to five, in fact, and they range from teenage years down to, to five and six years of age as well. So when they come and see you about their estate plan, what sort of things are they going to want to discuss, things that they need to put in place uh, with respect to having the young families as part of the estate plan? Okay, um, so Ian, for your clients who are young families, if one of their parents was to pass away, um, that is a very vulnerable position because when you're bringing up young children, uh, there is not only the emotional responsibility but the financial responsibility. And for one parent to pass away is a huge thing for that surviving spouse. Uh, so the estate planning is particularly important for young families and I encourage young families to take it very seriously. Hopefully nothing would ever happen and it is more unlikely that, it will ha that you will die as a young person than when you're older. But if it did happen, you know, it is, a, you know, catastrophic. And so a, a, a testamentary trust, I call it the young family testamentary trust will would be absolute gold in that situation and the way you would do it is that both husband and wife would do it, put a testamentary trust in their wills in favour of the surviving spouse and the young children. Let's say we've got Roger and Amanda and they're in their mid to late 30s and they've got two children who are five and seven. Uh, Roger dies in a car accident or something like that. Amanda might have been working full time but she's going to scale back most likely um, and uh, to look after these two children. So if there was a testamentary trust in Roger's will, and let's, let's hope that he had super and life insurance of some you know, magnitude, it's not that expensive when you're younger. Um, and and I'll just for the purposes of simplicity, I'll just say, let's say he had a million dollars in his super and life insurance. Now, if he does a binding nomination to the estate and therefore allows that million dollars to go into that young family testamentary trust for Amanda and the two children. She can use that money as she sees fit because she'll be the trustee so she can take money out if she wants. She might want to pay down the mortgage uh, a little bit but if she invests the money in that testamentary trust then each of those young children has a tax-free threshold equivalent to the adult tax-free threshold. And if you include the low income and middle income offset, that's actually $23,226 a year, let's call it $23,000, tax-free 
per child per year. So she's already got a $46,000 tax-free income on that investment, plus whatever she wants to put in her uh, income she wants to distribute to herself. Now, she doesn't have to pay the $23,000 to each child and, and bury it into um, a trust account for them. She can spend that money on their maintenance, uh, their education, and actually it's even broader general benefit. And all of that is essentially a tax deduction. So things like school fees, um, even food and accommodation, you know, trips, childcare fees, everything is tax deductible up to that tax-free threshold. If they both passed away, the testamentary trust is then the financial structure that carries those children through to adulthood. And in that will, we would be putting in controllers um, that would look after that fund until the children were old enough to take it over themselves. So it becomes mission critical then to have it in there. Um, and of course, um, they should also consider selecting guardians in the event that both of them were to pass away. I suppose, arising from uh, the explanation there, which has been great, what should our clients consider with respect to guardianship and what's the difference between guardianship and the gap controller? So Ian, the guardians look after um, the children's life decisions. They don't necessarily actually have to be the day-to-day -day carers of the children. So the parents are the natural guardians of the children. Uh, if they select guardians in the event of both of their deaths, for example, in that example, um, those guardians will determine where the children go to school and where they will live, what pet they will get, and, and so on, all the things that parents sort of decide for you. So that's what guardians do. The trustees of the testamentary trust that you put in your wills for those children look after the trust monies. You know, it could even be a trustee company if you so wished. It could be people who are different to the guardians. It could be the same as the guardians but you're really picking people who are financially prudent um, to look after the trust fund. And for guardians, you're looking at people who are close to the children who will bring them up in the way you want them to. And in our young family TDT wills, we also have a very, very lovely letter of wishes that goes on the side where you can put your wishes as to how you want them to be raised. And do you want them to go to a private school or you know, a Christian school or you know, do you want them to have pocket money or do you want to be mean and not let them have pocket money and, and so on. And, and also in your experience and with respect to kids and when they receive the money from the testamentary trust, is there certain considerations around age and maturity that parents should think about while they're developing their plan? Oh, absolutely. And a lot of the clients that we see tend to go for the age of 25 before they think children are mature enough to look after their own money. You know, if we're doing plans for children that are sort of 14, 16, you start to get a feel of what your child's like by then. You kind of, one is responsible, one not so much and so on. And sometimes it helps to bring an old horse along and yoke it with the, the new horse. So one of the things I like doing is is saying, well, you know, Uncle John, the accountant, for instance, might be the trustee, but little Mary's quite astute and is going to study accounting or law or whatever, uh, and she's already on her way. So at 18, I'll put Uncle John and little Mary together, and then at, and, and Uncle John can teach little Mary the ways, and, uh, and then at 25, little, you know, Uncle John drops off and little Mary stays on as the sole controller of her trust. And by, quite by contrast with Ian, um, I and a lot of my clients 
are in a completely different age demographic. And uh, so we have families with adult children and a lot of us with um, grandchildren. What are the different things that you should consider in your estate plan other than what you've just spoken about? Yeah, well, you know, when your children grow up, uh, well, they're never really off your hands, Felder, are they? <laughs> but they do become less hands-on. Um, and, you know, you, you start to move from the Young Family Testamentary Trust to a situation where, you know, you, you might give everything, for instance, to your spouse. Um, and then if both of you pass away, you leave a testamentary trust for each of your adult children. You can try and pile all your adult children into one trust, but my experience is there's blood on the floor when you do that, uh, because you know siblings can fight and not agree on different. Chris is nodding his head here, um, not agree on, on all their investment strategies. So the better, I think, better view in most cases um, is to give each child their own respective testamentary trust, because they're starting to look at having their own children, which are your dear grandchildren. Um, which are, are so delightful and, and easy to look after compared to your own children because you can give them back at the end of the day. Um, and um, the, all the advantages that you saw in terms of the tax position for your adult child um, applies to their own young children in their testamentary trust. So if you were to pass away, the inheritance can be used and have those same tax-free thresholds in terms of those grandchildren of yours uh, and that's great, but it also has an added benefit, um, you know, when you're looking Valder at adult children, and that is it gives that adult child a measure of asset protection from divorce and bankruptcy that putting the, um, the inheritance just direct to the child doesn't have. And, and that's something that a I find a lot of my clients with adult children are very interested in. Yes, and that really uh, leads into the fact that um, really the tax benefits of what you do in your will are going to carry on long past um, after you have passed away and there are considerable benefits. I have eight grandchildren so I imagine that my own children will be able to enjoy significant tax benefits. That's right, with the testamentary trusts in place and if you've got them in your will that's exactly what will happen. That's great, thank you. So then, Anne, I suppose as we go through in this modern world from young families to adult children and grandchildren, etc., there's always a risk, um, and whether the percentage is as high as people that have wills, but divorce rates are climbing. Um, people are remarrying more than once as well, two, three, four times. What are the particular risks for blended families, especially those that have wills in place, have got divorced and then remarry, as an example? So blended families in estate law are tricky and they're the greatest estate claim um, cases that we see coming through. And the reason for that comes from the fact that you can, in, a, in all Australian states, and, and I'll talk to Queensland situations specifically because all of the states have slightly different rules, uh, but in all Australian states, um, um, spouses, whether they are first spouses or second spouses, obviously it's got to be a spouse that's current and not divorced unless um, that divorced spouse is getting spousal maintenance from you, which is rare these days. So let's not talk about that. Let's talk about a current spouse, the spouse you have when you die, and your children from various relationships beforehand all have an estate claim against your estate. Often their, their, their interests are competing. 
So you have children, let's say, of a first marriage, and then you have your second spouse. And uh, if you die and you leave everything to your second spouse, you have children who can make a claim. If you die and you leave everything to your children, even though that's what you both decided to do, um, your spouse can change her or his mind um, after you die and bring an estate claim for part of your estate. So, you know, with those thoughts in mind, and that's the, the primary example of what happens. It's children of a first relationship or previous relationships um, attacking the estate of, um, you know, uh, the, the parent when they die because they've left everything to a second spouse or the spouse attacking it because that parent's left everything, in fact, to their children. It's something that you really have to um, know how to um, plan for well, because if you do have an estate claim, the legal fees will be three hundred dollars to $500,000. Uh, and it normally, not always, but normally comes out of the estate. So the main beneficiary of your estate becomes the lawyers. Personally, I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> um, but, um, but it is a problem. It is a real problem. And there have been cases where of estates worth $500,000, I could note there's at least you know, one recorded a year just in Queensland where all of the, the whole estate has been taken up in the legal fees because no party would settle, no, no one would just compromise, and it just became a ding-dong battle to the bitter end until there was nothing left to fight over. So this is a really important topic and, and, and one that is not done necessarily fully thoroughly thought through in some of the plans that come across my desk. So I think it's worthy of a podcast in and of itself. But that's up to you, um, Valder and Ian. Yes, and as you know, Anne, I do have a blended family and it's very important to me and um, I really appreciate all the advice that you've given me on that. And I would love to share those ideas with um, or our audience in the next podcast. Terrific. No, well, because it's part of the, the mini-series, that actually is going to be the topic of our of our second episode. So you'll have to tune in for, for that one um, over the coming period. But I'd uh, really like to say thank you, Anne, for, for coming in for, for this first episode on, uh, I guess, the fundamentals of building um, your estate plan. Uh, for anyone out there that's looking for assistance or advice or to get started on that process, how would they get in contact with you? Um, how do they, uh, as I say, how do they um, reach out to you? Well, um, Chris, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be here as well. I always love talking about estate planning. It's so interesting. Um, but yes, they're more than welcome to um, probably the first steps go to our uh, website, which is estatefirst.com.au. Um, or just give us a, a ring on 1300 132 567 um, if they want to uh, talk to us um, about their situation. Well, uh, I'd like to say thank you also to, to Valor and Ian for, for their time this morning. But again, a very special thank you to yourself and look forward to the, the next episode where obviously we cover uh, a few uh, further topics and look at blended families specifically. Thank you, Chris. For business owners seeking accounting, taxation, business advisory and superannuation support assistance, please feel free to get in contact with the advisor team at Archer Gallant Redshaw. Led by Ian Walker, Smulyan Jankovic and Valda Glynn, 
Our firm are a Brisbane CBD-based accounting practice, supporting businesses across a variety of industries throughout Southeast Queensland and nationally. You can get in contact with our team via the website, www.agredshaw.com.au, via email at info at agredshaw.com.au or contacting 073002 2699.